Well, this morning we want to take a look at the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ as King presented unto Jerusalem and to his people. And uh, what we want to do, by the grace of God, is look at the last week, the first day of the last week, as he entered into Jerusalem. The last week being the last week that Jesus was on earth. However, I want to do it not from Brother Chuck's perspective. He read for us out of John chapter 12 when the Lord entered into Jerusalem. But we want to do it from a position of about 4,000 years before that. 4,000 years, generally speaking. In fact, let me say maybe 6,000, because we're going to add 2,000 from here to the Lord's earthly ministry, then we're going to go back another 4,000 years. So we're going to go to the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem as king. Uh, the last time we were with you, we shared a few things that took place basically six days prior to uh, that day of which we speak of, which is Palm Sunday, that being on the Saturday, as we would know it, or the Sabbath, when the Lord was blessed in the company of, excuse, uh, of Mary, you remember, who broke over her alabaster box of ointment and shed it on the Lord's head and feet also, as in another account. So that was Saturday. So the next day was Sunday, the first day of the week. That began the last full week of the Lord on earth. And in looking at this, we learn in the gospel accounts that the majority or most of what is said in terms of attention given to this particular event or this week, takes up a large percentage of the Gospels. I mean, there, Brother Chuck read for us from John chapter 12. So from 12 to 21, which is almost half the book, is given to that last week, the final week. And I want to introduce the subject of that last week today from the book of Genesis chapter 49 because I believe it foretells the coming of the king. He's presented as king. Very important point. We can't miss that. But I want to underline a few things in terms of structure that's important to note as we look at these events in the narratives especially. You may go home and read, refresh your memory about that. And that is all detail in the Bible is significant, even the little stuff. But there's always the main emphasis of what the Lord is trying to present for us, which is very important. And I say that because we kind of dismiss the little things when we read the Bible, and partly because we either don't take the time to study it for ourselves or we just think it insignificant. But it is significant. When we say that they met six days before the Passover, it's not very significant, I admit. It's not insignificant, significant, but it is noteworthy. It's noteworthy. However, the main thrust, of course, that experience that we shared with Mary and the oil was the importance of Mary's love for the Lord Jesus Christ in view of His coming death. That's the most important thing. But the fact that the Holy Spirit gives details, little details, we should not just glance over because in our studies we learn 
that these little sayings add a certain amount of parameters to the whole narrative, to the story. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when we read various accounts in the Bible, and much like we want to share with you today, it's really not like a documentary on television. Documentaries are just filled with details, and you know, when the whole thing's over, we just, we're kind of numbed by the amount of information that we just took in in the last hour concerning whatever subject is under consideration. And that's not how we read the Bible. We read the Bible from God's perspective. Like if we were going to do a narrative, excuse me, a documentary on creation, for instance, uh, we might be really itching to find out things in detail, what might have taken place. But yet, when we read the book in Genesis chapter 1 about the account of creation, we find out that God's the creator, and he created man, and he placed him in a garden, and they work together in fellowship. I mean, it's very simplistic themes, but they're prominent themes because they're conveying something that God wants us to know, but leaves out a whole lot of other stuff, like just how it worked. I mean, how did he form the molecules? Where did it all start? How did he do it? You know, these kind of things that we might find interesting in terms of the side issues. So every word of God is pure. Every word of God is significant, but some main features are prominent. The main feature that we have for us today is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is presented for us as king. And the question I might have is how do we ourselves, how do we appreciate that? How, where do we fit in? What's Jesus doing today if he's king? And so maybe some of these various questions uh, are playing on our hearts and minds this morning as we approach this grand and wonderful subject. But turn with me to the book of Genesis as we introduce this, this idea of the Lord entering into Jerusalem from many, many thousands of years ago. So the first thing we want to do is look at a particular son of Jacob, because in the particular son of Jacob, we're going to find that he is a figure of the Lord Jesus Christ with particular emphasis on his kingship, the fact that he's king. Now we remember that in the days of the Lord, he was presented as king, wasn't he? Yes, he was, in a royal robe and a crown of thorns upon his head. And Pilate turned to the people, and he set forth the Lord Jesus Christ in such array, and he said, Behold the man. Behold the man. It's a very sad thing that in our day and age, many people see Jesus from a, vantage point of human reasoning, and they look at him, discard, discarded, if you will, afflicted. They see him mortified, if you will, and it's a pitiful sight. But that's all they see. They see him as Pilate saw him. Now, a lot of the detail is not giving in terms of exactly what he looked like, but he certainly at that particular point wasn't presented as a specimen of a healthy man. He was scourged. The crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was beat and they mocked him with a robe. And so that Jesus that we see in our mind's eye is a pitiful sight of one who's been smitten and afflicted of God. 
But we see beyond that, don't we? We see the sacrifice for our redemption. And we see in that person one who deserves our honor and our appreciation and, yes, our reverence. We respect him. But it wasn't long before he presented this afflicted soul, the Lord Jesus Christ, before the people, that Pilate turned again and he said to them, Behold, I, your king. And some of the most saddest commentary in all the Bible is spoken of by the chief priest. When they looked upon him and they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. And those words have been recorded in the annals of God's history. Those words are recorded because they reflect the stubborn rebellion and sin of man in the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Judah this morning, we see a figure of what's to come 6,000 years before he came. Now listen, read with me in verse 8, Genesis chapter 49. This is a study this morning. I'm going to try by the grace of God to present some of the things that we feel or we see in this particular portion of Scripture. And maybe later on uh, we can address further the detail that we heard about this morning from John 12. But maybe as we read these and comment on these scriptures, we can forecast in our mind uh, the ultimate event that we heard. Judah, verse 8, Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Now I want you to stop right there as we look at this. Here we have the case of Judah among his brethren being blessed by Jacob. And of course this is very prophetic. And it's significant. But what stands out in my mind up to this point is how Judah might have felt. You know, I want everybody to come in to the bedside. I'm, I'm going to give my final blessings. And I'm sure Judah was standing by the bed having heard already the comments concerning Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Because that in and of itself would probably cause Judah to start trembling because they didn't receive certain blessings. You know, when you think about Reuben, for instance, you think about Simeon and Levi, they did some very bad things in their life. Very bad. Now, Reuben went up to his father's couch, his father's bed. In other words, he committed adultery or committed fornication with Bildad. And so, a very serious infraction. And as a result, Reuben did not receive a blessing there as his firstborn. But also, Simeon and Levi, they were guilty of a horrific crime of killing the Shechemites. You know, and you know, they were uh, guilty, of course, of uh, taking advantage of Jacob's only daughter, Diana, who happened to leave the security and the presence of the family and wandered off and she was left uh, at risk without father's awareness or father's protection. You could say that Jacob dropped the ball in that respect and Diana was violated by the Shechemites. 
And so there's some serious things going on in the life of Jacob. And so there's no doubt that Judah wasn't perfect equally. And as he heard the cursings, if you will, or the lack of blessings given to the previous three, I'm sure Judah was shaken when he might hear what Jacob has in store for him. But it's remarkably different. Judah, the scripture says, Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. So what, in terms of Judah, is remarkably different from the other three sons? Judah, if you remember, in the earlier account, one in which we won't really read, uh, he promised his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to be blessed with a seed. And that promise was never fulfilled. Tamar was upset. When Judah lost his wife, the Bible says he was comforted. He forgot about comforting Tamar, but he comforted himself. And as a result, Tamar was very upset. And so this took place over many years because Judah promised his young daughter-in-law one of his sons. And so obviously she must bear the widow's garb for many years. And when finally the opportunity came, he forgot And so Tamar tricked her father-in-law, tricked she will receive a seed. And so it happened that she deceived um, Judah. And the scripture says that uh, she bore uh, twins as a result. But there's something unique about Judah, and this is it. Also in the case later on, uh, when he was... uh, uh, bearing uh, uh, a mediator, if you will, an arbitrating, uh, arbitrary uh, type of uh, intermediate um, intercession between his brothers and Joseph down in Egypt. But just here's the point, and I'll just get to the chase, and that is this that Judah repented. Judah repented. He was no different than his brothers in his crimes. He was also part of selling Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites. But it was Judah who recognized that Tamar's more righteous than he was. And he stood up to Joseph and said, The Lord has impressed me with guilt. He felt the conviction of his sin and Judah repented. And as a result... He received the remission of sins. And so you could say this, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ accompanied the exercise of faith of Judah. And as a result, here when he stands before the bedside of Jacob, he is receiving a blessing. He's receiving a blessing. He shall be the praise of his brethren. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Now the name Judah means praise. It literally means praise. And so... How beautiful that is as it reflects the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the praise of the Father. Behold, thou art my son. This day I am well pleased. And so Jesus is the praise of the Heavenly Father. But he's also the praise and adoration of his people, of his brethren, world over. Uh, From the beginning of time, praise is given to the Son of God. Judah, thou art He whom thy brethren shall praise. This is a beautiful picture, not only in real time, in terms of the actual practical element, that his other brothers would recognize Judah as someone uh, 
uh, separated by God's sovereign grace and blessed uh, above measure, remarkably blessed, providentially with great prosperity, but also in terms of what he figures in terms of the Lord. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ will have come from the loins of Judah. He is of the lion and of the tribe of Judah. And of praise. And of course, the name Judah is where we get the name Jews today. Our Jewish brethren receive that name from Judah, if you want to know in terms of our originality. And then it says in verse 8, Thy hand shall be in the neck of thy enemies. And so that's just a figure of speech reflecting the strong arm ability of Judah, the strength of Judah. David, David excuse me, will refer to it himself uh, in Psalms chapter 18 and verse 40. If you want to take a look at that, he uses the same words because David was a military man. He was given to great might. He uh, destroyed a lot of the enemies, not only uh, the Philistine, but also many that were against God in his day. He, was, uh, he shed a lot of innocent blood as a result, unfortunately, but he was nevertheless a man uh, given to great armament and battle. But Judah in particular was the chosen tribe, if you remember, during the days of Judges that went into the land of Canaan and God used Judah, the tribe of Judah, to destroy and overtake and overcome the many tribes of the Canaanites. You can read about that. You just do a, uh, a search on that name Judah throughout the book of Judges and you'll see what I mean. So, your hand, Judah, shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. And of course, that's exactly what took place. These children there at his bedside would uh, recognize Judah, but ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, the father's elect will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in humble adoration. And so a beautiful picture as we set forth the kingship of the Lord in the person of Judah. Verse 9, now he speaks more to the might of Judah when he says he is a lion's whelp. And that means a young lion. Notice what it says, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. And so this is a beautiful picture of a young lion who's gone up, who's energetic, who's ferocious, and there's nothing that will uh, make, uh, make him afraid uh, from the prey. In other words, uh, he destroys others in his path. Um, others uh, are merely his prey. This young lion is strong and he's mighty. Thou art gone up, and it's a picture of the pride of the young lion who stands tall among all the other animals of the deep forest. He stands tall. And then it says he stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. And you can see a picture uh, not only of a young lion who's strong and energetic and ferocious and willing to take on the enemy, but we also see a much older lion in the same Judah who's a picture of resolve. Repose, quietness, you know, don't disturb the lion. He's resting, great strength, and we recognize it in this one. Who shall arouse him up? And then we go into another aspect in verse 10 
of Judah, which really um, brings all this into focus in terms of the kingship, the great lordship, and the great authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is, remember, when we read about these particular scriptures, we're reading scriptures that were written so long ago, and yet with, with so much power and teaching force as it portrays Christ. Uh, and this particular scripture is very noteworthy, not only among Christians today, but even among the Jewish scholars. In other words, even among the Jewish people, they look at verse 10, Genesis 49, as a scripture that reflects the coming Messiah. Now, they don't receive or understand Jesus of Nazareth as being that one, but they recognize this verse as being particular to their coming Messiah. The scepter, it says, shall not depart from Judah. Now, the scepter is a, an ornament, literally, that goes along with majesty. It could be uh, some sort of a rod with a signet on it, uh, some sort of uh, emblem in a crown of, uh, on the head. A scepter is a representation of something that goes alongside the royalty or the majesty of a monarch. And it's an emblematic of his sovereign rule. This scepter, it says here, shall not depart from Judah. And so Judah, here is son of Jacob, is promised to be a ruler, a governor. It says here in the next phrase, a lawgiver. And so this rulership will not depart Judah, will never depart Judah until, notice what it says, from between his feet until Shiloh come. And so now we have this picture of this sovereign ruler who's, who's a lawgiver, who's a judge, who judges justly, who legislates law. You know, a monarch, truly in the, in the truest sense of the, the word, is a lawgiver. And he not only enforces the law, but he makes the laws. You know, and we see accounts like that in the Old Testament. Even crazy laws that are made uh, without real understanding or knowledge. But once that law is set down in paper or print and ratified and sealed with the signet of the king, it's law and it can't be changed. And so... You know, in our society, in our culture, in our experience, we don't really fully understand or grasp this. Even in England today, it's, mere, it's a mere uh, picture or a degree of what it once was in the days of history. But uh, royalty and the monarch was very powerful. They, they gave laws, and notice this, it says, from between his feet. And this is a picture of his descendants. That's a phrase that reflects the fact that Judah's descendants will continue to be law, the, 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 the important aspect of this one to come will not depart from that descendant. There will be no interruption, in other words. You know, and this is a key, very important point. We might think, well, there was an interruption, wasn't there, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Remember, he took Zedekiah. What did he do? He took Zedekiah from all practical purposes, from our vantage point, maybe from his, the last king of Judah. You see, the, the, the kingdoms were divided at a certain stage. We had the kingdoms of Judah, and we had the kingdom of Israel. And, of course, all the kings of Judah, primarily, by and large, were God-fearing men. 
on the kingdoms of Israel, which was further north, which took care of most of the tribes of Israel, the ten tribes of, to the north, were mainly altogether evil. Every one of those kings were evil. They did that which was evil in the sight of God. And what does that tell you? That tells you that God's sovereign, and he dispenses grace to whomsoever he will. That's what that tells you. That's what it tells us here. That Judah is particularly marked out by the sovereign grace of God. You say, Brother Sri, why is it that he chose the fourth son? I don't know. God's sovereign. He does what he wants. Why does he choose one and not another? Because he's sovereign. And so anyway, um, this idea of the lawgiver will not depart, the idea that he, uh, Shiloh will come and will be in the line of Judah is very important. Well, it says here, from between his feet until who comes? Shiloh. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people think this is really a bad interpretation of the original language because they say, well, it's a place. It's a town in Ephraim. And how is it that the Messiah could be a town? But, you know, that's, uh, that's really symptomatic, isn't it? Because in the Bible we read in many ways Jesus is represented by more than just a person. He's represented by figures. He's a rock in one place. He's a pole, a serpent on a pole in another place, right? He's a river in one place, broad rivers. He's made unto us a place. And so you can't run that argument by me. It doesn't hold any water. In other words, we can't discard this idea, Shiloh, and place it like we read in another translation as it being a tribute, quote-unquote. Now, Shiloh here is the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It simply means peace or at ease, rest. The Lord Jesus Christ has made peace for us through the blood of the cross. We are at peace with God. He is our peace. In other words, there was enmity at some time, at some point. We who were sometimes alienated from God are now at peace with God. He's our friend. God loves us. He's no longer at odds with you. You're no longer his enemy. You've been reconciled. That's a happy thought. That'll bend your knee toward reverence. Judah here is one who is called Shiloh. But in addition to this idea of peace, it also references something else. Because it references this idea whose right it belongs. And there's something there that we don't quite understand, as I mentioned, about this monarchy and and this king and this royal authority. It's got something to do with the right. The right. And so, you know, when you're, you know, when the coronation takes place and the king is set aside, um, it is given to that particular person because of the right it's due them. They have the, um, uh, they have the right of passage, if you will, to sit on that throne for whatever reason. The bloodline, you know, they're next in line. You know, and uh, nobody can take that away. No matter how young they, per- they may be. Might be a child, but he has the right. If the father dies, the king dies, King Richard dies, guess what? The young man will now sit in his, in his stead because by virtue of whose right it is, it belongs. I found this little jewel of a scripture in, in, in Ezekiel 21 I want to share with you that conveys this. In verse 27 it says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. It shall be no more. 
until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. And I think this scripture basically says that God basically undermines the authority of the Judean kings until such time Shiloh does come. This really refers to the time of the Babylonian Empire. And I had mentioned Zedekiah not long before, and I remember sharing that with you in terms of most people think that he was the last king and he was set up in front of Nebuchadnezzar and, he, and all his children were set ahead of him. All his sons were set in front of him. And what he did, Nebuchadnezzar, he had Zedekiah as hard as we can imagine this. His eyes were poked out. And the last thing he saw was his sons. And then, of course, they killed all his sons because there wouldn't be left a Judean uh, possibility of no one whose right it belonged to would be left for that particular uh, rulership, that sovereign seat. And so one might think, well, that was the end of it. But that wasn't the end of it, was it? Because there was another one that was hid, that actually sat in the court of Nebuchadnezzar named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was of the line of Judah. And his son, Jochim, would rule. And guess who he would be the progenitor of, ultimately? Another man who went back after the 70 years of captivity. And his name was known as Zerubbabel. And he was a prince of Judah. And so we see there even God overturning, overturning, overturning. Uh, even in uh, judgment against Judah for their sins, he will preserve, he will preserve himself a king which will not depart from, from, uh, up from between his feet, from Judah, until he comes, Shiloh, whose right it belongs, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming. When the scripture says of Joseph, Joseph was of the tribe of Judah. He was the husband of Mary. And of course that is a symbolic attachment to uh, the idea that Jesus was from the very loins of, the Jude- of Judah here back in the Old Testament. Now as we read further here, we read verse 11. And all that was being, has been said up to this point reflects uh, the, uh, the important fact of his sovereign rule and his mighty position and his strength as a lawgiver and the fact that he's a peacemaker but now notice this, and this is where we, where we come in at this idea of the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And here we read in verse 11, because there's additional layers that are given to understanding the king and his position as king uh, when he ultimately comes. Because this is something that is very distracting in many of the minds of people who look for a particular kind of of Messiah, what is about to be take, is being said here. Nicodemus and many, listen, what did Nathaniel say? Nathaniel, if you recall, said, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? And that was probably a pretty good point 
to be made. Nazareth was a very despised place. And, you know, you can't find in the Bible where a great promised leader would come out of Nazareth. Um, and so they were scratching their heads. Nazareth was south side of the railroad tracks, if you will. It wasn't a very prominent feature. So here the Lord was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And Nazareth was a very despised place to live. It was the poor country. Nobody special was in Nazareth. And so when Nathanael heard that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, he said, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? And so the, conf- the, the, the confliction in the minds of those who awaited the coming King of the Lord, the Lord, the, the Lord of glory, the coming Messiah, the, the conflict that they had in mind, their mind, is how can such an ordinary fellow from Nazareth be the Messiah? How could it be? The son of Mary, the carpenter's son, whose brothers and sisters we know... See, there was a great conflict in their mind. Even the disciples had a difficulty with it. But it wasn't soon that the Lord testified of his person. How did he do that? How did he testify? He testified it through miracles. They were attestation to the fact that he was the son of God. He raised the dead, didn't he not? He gave sight to the blind. He healed the sick. And so he fed thousands with a few loaves. He was a miracle worker. And the disciples could see it with their own eyes. And so after three and a half years of ministry, of serving, of turning water into wine, the people gave testimony that this man from Nazareth was indeed the Son of God. That he was the right, it was he whose right it belonged. That he would be king, you see. Very important point. But yet, this cloak that covered this idea that he is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows. It didn't fit the pattern, the role. And ever since that day, there have been Jewish people that were that have been looking for the Messiah, looking for the king that would restore dominance to the Davidic kingdom, once enjoyed, world over, dominance, political power, money, riches, and wealth. They keep looking. They keep looking. It wasn't long ago, if I recall right, that this one man in particular, um, who was an ascetic Jew, who came out of the troubled Nazi past, outlived the Holocaust, and rebuilt the Orthodox Jewish system, that they looked to this man who would be the Messiah. But there was a problem. He wasn't a Judean king. He wasn't from the lineage of Judah. There was no, he was from New York. There was another problem. He died. He was 92 years old. He wasn't from everlasting to everlasting. There's some major issues that we have. He could not fit the bill. And in addition to all that, there was no proof. Back in 70 AD when the, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they didn't leave anything unturned. There was not one rock in place. It was all demolished, even the archives. How do you know you're Judean? 
You know, it's interesting that we can find in Matthew's account in the first chapter a genealogy that suits the kingship of the Lord Christ. He doesn't go back all the way to Adam like Luke's genealogy. Matthew is proving the point that the Lord Jesus Christ, this man from Nazareth, is suited to be the Messiah. He proves it. He proves it by tracing the lineage of Jesus Christ all the way back to Abraham. That's as far as he had to go to prove that he was truly a Hebrew. See, the Lord Jesus Christ will not attach himself to any other peoples but the Hebrews. In other words, he was of the seed of David. This is important, and this is what we're getting out of verse 11. Notice what it says, binding his foal unto the vine. The Lord Jesus Christ was attached to Israel. The vine here is a figure of the nation of Israel. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, he wasn't from an African-American descent. He wasn't from a Caucasian descent or maybe a white European descent. The Lord was a Hebrew. It's a, it's a non-issue. I don't know why you know, the secular world creates so much dust when it's right here in the Bible that he was of the seed of David. He was a Hebrew. I don't know what color his skin was. Probably bronze. Probably wasn't white like somebody over there in uh, the Scandinavian countries. It wasn't dark like sitting on the border somewhere down south. No, he was, he was Mediterranean, if you will. Um, I don't know what he looked like, but that's insignificant. The most important part, that he was the seed of Abraham. He had to be. So not only does the Bible teach us that he was a man, fully man, which would make him capable of redeeming men, but he was also of the seed of Abraham, proving that he would be the fulfillment of Judah here, the promised lawgiver, the governor, the king of kings. But binding his foal, notice this, this is a, a young animal, uh, binding his foal unto the vine, which obviously is referring to the attachment to Israel. But in addition, there's something else going on here too. Because you don't hitch your donkey up to a vine. I'm not, you don't do that. I don't think you do. It's like Brother Don's got a beautiful plush carpet of grass and inviting Brother Robert's cows to come over. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, he, the cows would destroy the grass. And you don't hitch your, the ass here, the, colt, the ass of a colt, a uh, donkey, if you will. I believe it's the same thing. You don't bring him over and attach him to the vine or else your vine won't last too long. But I think this is a picture of the great, stupendous, majestic prosperity of Judah. Of Judah, It was the land of Judah, the future land of Judah, that the spies went into and brought back... What did they bring back? They brought back grapes, didn't they not? And how did they bring them back? Did they bring them back in a little shopping bag? No, it took a big piece of bar that they got this big cluster of grapes and two men on their shoulders had to bring it back. It was a picture of the prosperity of the land of promise, full of milk and honey. It was a beautiful picture. And yet we find that fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ because in Him is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Uh, We see the beauty that He is altogether lovely. The Lord Jesus Christ, that one, Um, 
who from Nazareth yet bore the image of his father. Notice, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. Excuse me. And so, again, it's a picture of the Lord. And, of course, we heard about this. This is poetic language that is reiterated for us in the Old Testament that reflects his entering into uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. I say Palm Sunday because that's what we all know it by. It was simply the first day of the week that he entered Jerusalem on the colt of an ass, a donkey. And there never a man had sat on it before. And he, they put the covering on it, he sat there on, and then he entered into Jerusalem. But isn't this very figurative, is it not, of a king in terms of the Lord himself? The Lord, he lived a life unlike we might expect. He was born in swaddling clothes, was he not? In a manger, laid there. Uh, there was no room for him in the inn, which demonstrates the beginning of his entire life, a life of sacrifice, a life, if you will, of crucifixion. In other words, he lived a life of crucifixion, if you will. He denied himself. He lived a life of death. He wasn't prominent. We esteemed him smitten. In other words, when we saw him, he appeared no exceptional creature. He wasn't atlas. Okay, holding the world on his shoulders. He was an impoverished man, and at one point he was thirsty. He was like anybody else, an ordinary man, you see. And that's what boggled the minds of the Jewish leaders. But the scripture that I was referring to in terms of uh, another portion of the Old Testament found in Zechariah verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout! O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly. There's the word I wanted. Lowly. The Lord was a humble man. He humbled himself. He became obedient. As a servant, he became obedient to death. He subjected himself to death. Pilate said, I've got power to take your life. No, what did Jesus say? You have no power unless it's given to you from heaven, from above. Because there, remember, we had mentioned that all the workings of the crucifixion itself and all that surrounded those, those events, the entry into Jerusalem. Look at the detail. How significant are the little things? Because they picture the great hand of God micromanaging from heaven's throne. The details of the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of the Lord. Because that last week not only sets forth the diminishing of Jesus, crucifixion on the cross, but also the extolling of Him, the resurrection on the third day when He rose from the dead. And that's why the prophet says, Rejoice greatly because your King has come. He's just and having salvation. Notice the phrase, having salvation. Lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. And I will, notice this, I'll read verse 10 and that's it and go back. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem 
and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And I wanted to capture that in answer to those who would take that word Shiloh and discard it for tribute. It fits. He is our peace. He made peace. We, notice what Paul said. Paul said, in Christ Jesus, ye who were at some times afar off are made nigh by what? The blood of Jesus Christ, of the blood of the Lord, blood of the cross. Listen, he mentions the phrase Christ Jesus because in that phrase we see the king, the anointed one, the majestic one, the Messiah, and we also see Jesus, Savior. And here's the whole point of our text in Genesis 49. That you can't isolate the fact of his kingship with the work that he was designed to do. The salvation of his people. You see that? Nicodemus, you didn't get that. The disciples didn't get that. They saw only what they wanted to see in a promised king that would come and rule the world. They weren't looking at him from the perspective of the prophets setting him forth as a lowly one. Coming forth on, the, on a donkey This is not the animal. This is a work animal. This is not the chief majestic animal. This is not the horse, the steed, the the stallion, you know, coming in strength. This is a breed that you wouldn't use in a parade. This is a breed that you would use on the farm. It's a work animal. It's insignificant in terms of its majestic qualities. But it's, 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 it's the choice of God in setting forth a figure that demonstrates the entirety of the crucified Lord of glory. And as we read this verse 11 in Genesis 49, we see more of exactly what they should have been looking forward to. And I'm sure many did. Many whose eyes were fastened on scriptures, who read the scriptures, understood the scriptures. Pharisees didn't do that. The Pharisees didn't read the Bible. My goodness. They made void the commandments of God. By what? Their traditions of men. They had religion. They had religion. You can go in places today where they have religion. They don't read the Bible either. They don't preach it. They don't teach it. They would find it most unique if they ever heard it. Very strange thing. They counted it strange things out of the law. It was said of Ephraim. And people today count the Word of God strange things. Strange things. There's coming a day when there will be a famine for hearing the words of God. A typical seminary student coming out of school won't preach the Bible. Preach something else. Why? You know, preaching the Bible is just really setting forth truth of God. It's a declaration. That's all it is. You don't have to be up here trying to figure out philosophically, analytically, an approach to uh, the Bible. You know, when we look at the Scripture truth, we're looking at simple words that convey simple meanings. You know, I know the Bible says they're dark sayings, but they're dark sayings to the unbelieving mind. To those who are seeking the truth, they shall find. I believe they shall find because God's promised to them. That those that seek shall find. Those that knock, the door shall be opened unto them. But to those that are full of themselves, who don't read the Bible, or who read something else into the Bible because they're looking it through their own filter, they'll never see the truth. Such were the Pharisees. The parables are very simple. 
They were used by God to define the concrete truths of the Scriptures. Yet, they also, at the same time, were used by the Lord Jesus Christ to confuse the wise and the prudent among them. So this is very simple when we read it, and you might ask, well, is there something special underneath all this? No, listen to as I read it. He was bound to this foal that was to the vine, and it was a choice vine because God so chose it by His sovereign. He chose Hebrews to be the uh, people on the face of the earth to bear the oracles of God, the covenants of promise, and it was through the Hebrews, through the son and sons of the lineage of Abraham, uh, by which the Lord Himself would come. He chose that. They were chosen from among all other nations on earth because God's sovereign. That's his right. He's by virtue of the fact that he is God. He can do what he wants. There's no other particular reason other than that. No other particular reason. Why didn't, why did, why didn't he come through uh, Japheth? Why did he come through a Shechemite or Shem? I mean, what happened? Not a Shechemite, Shem, Shemite, Hebrew. And uh, because it's God's choice, it says right there in the Bible, unto the choice vine. He washed his garments. Here's the phrase I wanted to get to. Because it takes the king, the coming king, and it applies the work to him. And so when we read Christ Jesus, we read king and savior. Isn't that a neat thing? There's an opening. You want to discuss the gospel with some of your friends but don't know how to do it? Just use the name. Split the name. What Christ represents, what Jesus represents. Well, you you, you know who Jesus is. Yes, yes. We give gifts in his name every Christmas on December 25th. No, let me tell you more about him. Let me tell you how he shed his blood. Emmanuel's veins. On the cross, a cruel Roman tree, and shed his blood that his people would be saved from their sins. His garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? His eyes shall be red with wine. His eyes are as a flame of fire, the Bible says. His all seeing eyes. When you see the vision of Christ, On his throne, you see the vision of his eyes, his all-penetrating eyes. You remember when the Lord Jesus turned there in his agony as he stood in the judgment hall and Peter was warming his hands. Excuse me. Excuse me. By the fire. And Peter... That choice disciple. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Denied ever knowing Him. Cursed at Him as He warmed His hands. And the Lord turned. And with His eyes He beheld Peter. And the Bible says that He went out and He wept bitterly. He said on one occasion, after Peter, was, after he prophesied that Peter would deny him, 
in the very next verse, the Lord said, as he was looking to Peter, he said, believe in God, believe also in me. He said, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to go to a place. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will receive you unto myself. What you and I couldn't do because of sin's dread sway on our hearts. What you and I couldn't do as we see Jesus behold the man scourged. What you and I could not fathom and understand in perceiving the redemption of, of our soul in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He did for us and on our behalf. He saved us from our ignorance Notice what it says in heaven, and we'll close with this text. Here was uh, a vision, and we're at 12 o'clock, so I need to step down. But John sees a vision, and he weeps. A great and a strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? No man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. I love the phraseology of this in heaven, in earth, under earth, because it mirrors the image in Philippians chapter 2, where it speaks of a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. You see, the, the answer to the question, where is Jesus now? Uh, the answer is that he's reigning right now. He's seated at the right hand of all majesty. He is working his sovereign will as king, not only in the hearts of his people, but he's governing this world. He is allowing uh, whatever takes place to take place under his sovereign rule. He is the king. And while John fretted and wept and this vision because he could see no man that was able to open the seals of this book, to loose them. Uh, we have in the same breath the answer as to who was worthy to open the seals of the book there, thereon. He said, I wept much. He said, I was, there was no man found worthy. And one of the others said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And so in the midst, he says, he beheld in the midst of the throne of the four beasts and in the midst of the altars stood a lamb as it had been slain. We see Christ Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings and lord of lords. But we also see a lamb. We see Jesus, the savior, a lamb as it were slain, as it were slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Wow, what a beautiful picture of the victorious Christ reigning now, ruling now. And to us who look upon Him, we see Him as the Lamb, as it were, slain for us. We behold Him as our Redeemer. And we see the majestic aspect of His sovereign rule and the work associated with it. May the Lord bless you this morning. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. 
We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.